Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Showmans. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christ Church Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and, and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. Galatians chapter 3, verse 15 to 29. You can go ahead and turn there. The sermon title this morning is The Law and the Promise. I'm going to read the whole section this morning. You can follow along with me if you would like. Starting in verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings referring to many, but referring to one, and your offspring, who is Christ. That is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, did not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Well, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Well, certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are one in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. This is the word of the Lord. Now, you're going to get repeated themes this week, and through the book of Galatians, it's so good at that, just repeating the same same theme chapter by chapter and even verse by verse. But one of the big problems in the Galatian churches that we, we need to recognize was the fact that Abraham had almost been entirely forgotten. Now that sounds strange. I don't mean that they didn't know that they were sons of Abraham or at least claimed to be sons of Abraham. I don't mean that they didn't know the story of Abraham and Sarai or Abram and Sarai and then Abraham and Sarah. I don't mean that, but they did miss the theological sense of what Abraham signifies with faith and belief in the coming Messiah. They did not see, nor did they understand, that Abraham was justified before the law was given. That's the central argument that Paul is is making here. They did not understand that Abraham was justified by faith before the law was given. Therefore, how does the law and keeping of the law of Moses add or take away from justification by faith? Because Abraham was justified before the law was given. Now, these false teachers... They were saying, well, it's impossible to be justified 
without Moses. That's what they were saying. You need Jesus plus the law. And it's like Paul this morning, or in, their, in the passage we have today, it's like Paul's holding up a sign and saying, what about Abraham? If it's impossible to be justified without the law, what about Abraham? Because he was justified 430 years before the law was given. So we're going to see the truth of salvation of a sinner, even though it was revealed in time, and even though in the Old Testament they saw things almost like we see things now through a glass dimly, so salvation was re revealed a little bit more at a time. We see now, as we look back, we're going to see the truth of salvation plain and clear. We live in an age of Christian history in which we have all of God's revelation, which is a privilege. It's a privilege to be in the New Covenant era, post-Pentecost, where the Spirit of God is living within us, and we have the words of God in front of us. It's on our shelf at home. It's on our phones wherever we go. We have God's Word available, and we can look and see Jesus throughout the whole Scriptures. We know more about how God saves than any of the patriarchs knew about how God saves. We know more about how God saves a sinner than how any of the prophets knew God saves a sinner. We know more about God's revelation of salvation than all of the kings or the priests in the Old Testament. And it's a privilege indeed to turn our eyes to the Old Testament today as we think about this in the book of Galatians and see all that Christ has accomplished even through the lenses of the Old Testament. It's a pretty special thing. So verse 15 starts off with breaking down this argument. Paul's making this simple and clear for those that were being duped by those Judaizers. He's making it very clear for those that have Jewish roots for them to see God's covenants plain and clear. Okay, so here, here it is in verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it after it's been ratified. Here's how covenants work. Human covenants, after the terms and conditions are agreed upon, cannot be changed or ratified. That's how a covenant works. Both parties agree to the conditions, and then they sign or move forward with a covenant and back then, they would agree to a covenant by the spilling of blood. You see this in Genesis very clearly, where the spilling of blood would happen, where an animal would be sacrificed, and the two parties, upon agreeing upon the covenant, would walk through that blood and agree to whatever terms were given. And then that covenant is ratified. And after that, it is what it is. And so even a human covenant has this, has this image of of two parties coming together and agreeing upon the conditions of the covenant. Now, when we see God's covenant, verse 16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Verse 17, that is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. God's promise, his promises were given to Abraham and to his seed or his offspring. Now this is going to be important and we're going to connect the dots to this verse, to the very last verse. Go ahead and look to the very, very last verse we're looking at today, verse 29. And you are Christ's then. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Singular, again. We're going to make a connection here. In just a little bit. Pretty cool. Heirs according to the promise. So back to verse 16. It does not say offsprings, referring to many, but offspring, who is Christ. So Abraham and Christ have these promises given to them. And 
The law came after the promise. The promise was given. The law came after the promise was given. And so Paul's argument is that what was promised in Abraham isn't done away with when the law comes 430 years later. The law does not do away with what God did to Abraham by grace. And so hopefully as they're thinking through this, there's some light bulbs going off just like we talked about last week where they're thinking, oh yeah, that doesn't change what God did with Abraham or what God does with any of his people who believe in the promises of God. The law doesn't come away and take away from what God did in the past. It had to be given for some other reason. So if Abraham was justified apart from works of the law, then somehow or another then, we can be justified by Christ and faith in Christ apart from works of the law. And hopefully these connections are happening in the church. They should be happening with us. Verse 18. What if those false teachers were correct? What if they were correct? Verse 18 tells us, For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by way of promise. If the inheritance which we're going to talk about again in verse 29, heirs according to the promise, heirs of an inheritance. If the inheritance comes by way of the law, then it doesn't come by promise. That's the problem. That's the central issue. As we're looking at it from different angles, Paul continues to get back to the central issue time and time again. They are claiming to be sons of Abraham by way of Moses, not by way of Abraham. They're claiming access into God's grace by way of Moses and missing God's grace given to Abraham. But that's not how God gave Abraham the promise. It was by grace. And that faith that Abraham expressed was demonstrated by his actions. We find out in the book of James. But that grace given to him was not given to him because of his actions. It was given to him even before he left. So... Why was the law given? If the false teachers are correct, then Abraham was never actually justified. So the false teachers are actually wrong because Abraham was justified. So why then was the law given? If it was given 430 years later, if salvation has already been established, if grace was already on the scene, why then the law? Look at verse 15, or 19, excuse me. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Why the law? The law was given because transgressions were so many. That law includes the sacrificial system. Now there was some connection already with the spilling of blood... Because it's seen even from Noah, it's seen in Adam with God himself providing the clothes to cover the shame of Adam and Eve. So blood was spilled. There were some connections to Adam's sac or animal sacrifice already being made. But the law of Moses came and made the sacrificial system more clear and gave us more clear pointers to Jesus. And for them, they recognize now, okay, without the spilling of blood, there is no remission of sins. So the law was given because of transgressions, and it was put in place until Christ would come. So with the law, the people would see their sin 
more and more. So there's transgressions in place. Maybe they didn't even know they were walking in, in transgressions. The law is given, and now the people recognize, I am sinning. I am violating God's law. And for some reason, God wanted them to see the depth of their sin. And it was put in place through an intermediary, through Moses. So that's why the law was given. Now, the law does something. It works in a certain way, and we're going to see really clearly why the law was given. So we see it was, was given because of transgressions, but also it was given for another reason. Look at verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would be indeed, by, indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. The law of God and the promises of God are not at odds with each other. They simply have different functions. God giving his law to his people was a very good and gracious thing. It's a gracious thing for us to be able to look in a mirror and see who we are apart from God. It's a gracious thing to see the holiness of God through the law of God. This is what God is like. This is what He expects. This is who He is. God is holy. And He demands justice. That's why the blood of animals must be spilled. That's why Jesus had to die. So the law and the promise had different functions. If the law, Paul says ex explicitly, would have been given that could give life, and we know, according to what he has taught us and what the whole New Testament teaches us and the Old, is only faith in God can give life. Only God can give life. But if the law was given that could give life, then these Judaizers would have, of some way, these false teachers in the church of Galatia, they would have been correct. But the law was given to kill, not to give life. So therefore, the false teachers are wrong. And the scriptures, which Paul changes his word from the law to the scriptures, condemns everything under sin. This is what the law does so well for us. It sets us up so well for Jesus. And not just the Jewish people, but the law of God sets everyone up across the world up to see the glory of Jesus. The law of God through the scriptures condemns everything under sin. Everything. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. This is so important for us to understand. The law of God is so crucial and it's so good. And the world needs to know this. The world needs to look at the law of God, even in the Old Testament, and realize if Christ never came, this is what's expected of me. And this is how bad I've sinned against God because of all these 643-ish laws by the letter and all of the laws commanded from the heart, things like affections, lo love for God, that we are to, to love the Lord God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Okay, that's a law that has so many laws compacted within it. It, it has to do with the heart. It's not just a matter of the letter, but it's a matter of the heart. And if non-Christians across the world would see how much they have violated God's law, that they haven't broken God's law a little bit, that they are captives of God's law, that they have sinned against a holy God, not just in one way, but millions of ways. And every single day, they are breaking God's law. 
If they would understand the bad news and the Holy Spirit would do work and turn their eyes to what Christ has done, they would see how precious the good news really is. The law was given so that everyone would be held captive by it. They would see how much of a sinner that they really are. And there's some way or another that those pre-law and those post-law could not see in the same way the depths of their sin. They had a conscience still. There was some way that they, they knew that they had broken God's commandments, but not as explicitly as those post-Moses could see their sin. And so the law, by exposing and revealing transgression, by in captivating everybody in it, does something for us. It does something for the world. It helps us see transgressions. Condemns everybody under sin. It exposes. The law reveals what's in the heart of man. Um, still yet, for some reason, in the world, even today, and down throughout the history of the world, humanity has tried to argue that the heart of man is good. That there is an altruistic nature to humanity. To be a part of mankind means to be inherently good. And the argument's still around, even though we have TVs. Even though we have, throughout the 20th century, war. We, throughout the whole 20th century, we had war. Modern man at war. Civilized societies, civilized societies brutally killing each other. Today, we have people that think we have progressed so far in this world, and yet we see the slaughter of babies by the millions. We think we have progressed so far, and, and the irony about women's rights is that, that, that feminists and progressive think that, think that women are so free now that they don't have to wear clothes anymore. And that they can just go out and dance like Beyonce danced at the Super Bowl last year. And that's somehow liberty and freedom. Look how progressive we have gotten. Look how good humanity is, that we want to care for each other and take care of each other. Um, one of the greatest evidences of human sinfulness is how far and how much we will argue that we're innocent. We'll look at the world around us and mankind continues to demand that we're good as the world burns around us. We continue to argue, no, we're, we're good. We'll, we'll give the shirt off our back. We'll take care of people. And even if a non-Christian does the right thing externally, still internally the question exists, why are you doing that thing? What the law does, it entraps everybody. It's not just that we do the right thing. It's the motive by which we do that thing that counts. And Paul tells us that the law of God entraps everyone and holds us captive. The law highlighted how much we needed grace. The law highlighted how much we needed God to act. The promises of God, therefore, they do not come by way of law, but they come by faith in Jesus Christ. Because the law of God doesn't tell us we can do it. The law of God tells us we can't do it. And it demands that we look outside of itself to be saved by God through Christ and Christ alone. The question is, do you believe, not have you done the law? The question is, do you believe in what Christ has done, not have you kept the law? Verse 23 makes this so clear. But before faith came, we were held captive. 
under the law. Imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Now commentators have gone back and forth on this, and I think it's actually a whole lot simpler than some people have made this passage out to be. Um, this passage has been argued by some to say that in the Old Testament, you were saved by works and not saved by faith. Okay, like, like that salvation by works, like hyper-dispensational C.I. Schofield, original C.I. Schofield, anybody heard of the Schofield study system before? Schofield argued for this. The original Schofield Bible argued that people in the Old Testament were actually saved by works of the law. That there were different modes of salvation. And so this passage is, explicit, is absolutely not saying that. Okay? But as you read it, before faith came, we were held captive and then until the coming faith would be revealed. It seems like in the Old Testament there was no faith and now in the New Testament faith has come. Doesn't it seem like that? But Paul has been talking to us already about the faith of Abraham. Hebrews 11, if you all agree with the majority of people that said last week they believe that Paul wrote Hebrews, we won't argue about that. I agree, I think that Paul wrote Hebrews, but I could be wrong. So, Paul, or whoever wrote Hebrews, in Hebrews 11, wrote about the Hebrews Hall of Faith. Like, you, you hear about, by faith, all the people in the Old Testament did what they did by faith. The heroes of the faith did what they did through faith. Faith existed in the Old Testament. So Hebrews 11 tells us about that. Paul's been telling about that. So what is he talking about? Well, I think what, what's clear is that Paul is talking about the faith that's revealed after Christ. Before faith came. Now faith has come. What faith? Faith in Christ. More explicit. More clear. Not seen in the dark. Seen in the light. Not seen through a glass dimly, but seen through a glass clearly. I see clearly this faith in Christ Jesus. We live in the day that Abraham longed to see, but did not get to see. Verse 39 of Hebrews 11, All of these, though commended through their faith, so faith was there, did not receive what was promised. Faith in the Old Testament gained access into limited experience of God and limited understanding of redemption. That's before faith came. But now that faith has come, we are born again and indwelt by the Spirit, now we are no longer captives of the law, and we now see clearly what they did not see. And I want you to see that in verse 23. Before, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. And when that coming faith is revealed, we are no longer imprisoned or captive to that law. We're no longer imprisoned by it. We're no longer beat down by it. We're no longer killed by the law. When we have faith in Christ... The law is fundamentally different to us than it was before. We're no longer trapped. We're no longer helped in prison by it. Until faith came, it's like we re remained in captivity until the one who would fulfill the law for us until he showed up. Until faith in the law keeper showed up and was revealed, we, will, we were held captive. But now we're no longer captives of the law. You know, that's why when Paul says that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because we are not held captive by the law. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And there are many Christians throughout the world, and many, many to this day, and maybe some of you in this room, but you feel your walk with Christ, you just feel like you're in captivity. And the law of God is not a delight to you, it feels like a mallet to you. 
It feels like it's still killing you and crushing you. The truth that Paul is bringing us to today is that if you're in Christ Jesus, you're not held captive by that law anymore. Like you're free in Christ Jesus. You, the law of God is now your delight. It's not a mallet. The law of God doesn't kill you. You're not imprisoned to it anymore. You've been set free by Christ Jesus. We're no longer captives to the law. Verse 24 helps us understand this even further. So then, the law was our guardian, or the New American Standard says, tutor. So it's like it's this teacher guarding or, or, or helping us along the way until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The law was our guardian or tutor. Uh, before the people of God understood what Christ has done, so pre-Christ, we, we talked a little bit about this last week, but the Holy Spirit of God didn't dwell the people of God. The Holy Spirit empowered the people of God by, by coming upon the people of God in a particular place and time, but the Holy Spirit did not empower the people of God to live from the inside out. And so the Old Testament acted almost as this Holy Spirit guide for people who believed in the coming Messiah, and it guarded them until Christ had come, until Christ would come. But now as we have the Spirit inside of us, this tutor is no longer necessary in the way it was before. The Holy Spirit's working on the inside out of us, bringing inside and out the law of God, where we want to obey the commandments of Jesus. So that law acted as that tutor or coach pointing us to Jesus. And now we're not under that commandment anymore, or under that law in the same way anymore, because we have the Holy Spirit inside of us. The coming faith has been revealed. When Christ came, the guardian was no longer necessary because we see Christ clearly. The, the law had done its work. We're justified by faith. And New Testament faith was that kind of faith that was not there in the Old Testament. Faith was there, but New Testament faith was not in the Old Testament in the exact same way. So now faith has come. Verse 25 and 26. But now faith has come. We're no longer under the guardian, under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Faith has come. You and I have been born again. If you're a Christian, that means you have been brought from death to life. You are alive. And we're no longer under that tutor anymore because Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, we're all sons of God through faith. And here's where the law Holy Spirit connection becomes. Uh, comes to us in greater clarity. Because we are in Christ Jesus, that's why we're not under the guardian anymore. We are sons of the living God. Now, in the Old Testament, the understanding of God as Father and His people as sons and daughters was not as explicit as it is for us today. And Paul mentions this in the book of Romans. He mentions this in Galatians. Right now, that we are sons of the living God. Through faith in Christ Jesus. We have been brought from the place of being an enemy with God to a place of being sons and daughters of God. And so we're no longer under that tutor because we are now children of God. We want to do what the Old Testament people of God were commanded to do. We want to do that from the inside because the Holy Spirit is at work in us. The law doesn't condemn us because we're sons of God. 
It's now our delight to live in obedience to God's commandments, knowing that the law doesn't kill us any longer. What Paul's telling us, and what he says so, so clearly in, through the book of Romans as well, the law of, law of God is still good for us. We need to understand that. But our position to the law of God is now totally different. We are no longer under it in the same way we were before. Now, as sons and daughters of God, we simply want to obey from the inside out. When we don't obey, it frustrates us. It gets us upset because we want to obey. The, the deepest level and desire of our heart is to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. If you love me, Jesus says, you will keep my... If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's a natural overflow of what God is doing in us. And so we want to obey him. We want to honor him. When we love Jesus, our natural posture towards him is, what do you want me to do, Lord? You're my Lord. You're my master. I want to obey. And when we fail to obey, we're frustrated. We run to Jesus again. We know there's no condemnation, but we're frustrated because we want to obey. But now we know that the law can no longer kill us. That there is no condemnation for each and every time we break God's law. We want to obey. Verse 27 tells us that this is for each and every single person that claims to be a Christian. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Everyone who has been baptized has put on Christ. If you are a baptized believer which should be a one-to-one, -one, by the way. Yes, there are cases of people that have become a Christian. The thief on the cross was never baptized, and he is with the Lord. But if you're a believer in Jesus, there's no reason whatsoever to not be baptized. You, we we want to obey. We want to help people understand through demonstration what God has done for us. That's just a natural step. We want to do that. Because... Good works are not a demonstration of the gospel, but baptism in the Lord's Supper is. It's a visible demonstration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as many people who have been baptized into Christ, those same group, that same group of people have put on Christ. This is one reason, by the way, and I love my uh, brothers and sisters that are Presbyterian or even Lutheran brothers and sisters that practice infant baptism, but there is a connection here to baptism and putting on and clothing yourself in Christ, that as many that have been baptized into Christ have been clothed in Christ. And so for my, my good Protestant brothers and sisters at Presbyterian churches, the question that I have and will probably always have is are you saying that that child has clothed themselves in Christ already? Because as many have been baptized have clothed themselves in Christ. This is an implication that if you're baptized, it's also somebody that's a Christian, somebody that's been born again. There's a connection. Baptism, clothed in Christ. Not baptism and not clothed in Christ yet. It's baptism and clothed in Christ. What baptism shows us is that God has a claim on us. That's what baptism shows us. God has a claim, and claim on us. It shows us that He has made us new. Baptism is not simply a step of obedience from the believer. It's a demonstration and declaration of what God has done for us. It's a demonstration and declaration about what God has done for us. So if you're a baptized believer, you're on Christ's team. You have Jesus' jersey on. He is the captain. We're on His team. We do think things His way. We follow His lead. And this is where we find our unity. Verse 28 and uh, verse 29 
are some of the most maligned and twisted Bible verses in all of the Bible. And verse 28, for sure, is one of the most maligned by progressives and feminists. And it's amazing what can happen when progressive, so-called progressive Christianity, which is just another word for not Christianity, what they do with verses like this is just alarming. We find in our baptism, as many of you have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, we talk about, we find Christian unity here. And I love this because Paul, in the midst of calling out false teachers, is going to call us to unity. You can call out false teachers and still be passionate about Christian unity. And today, for some reason, if you call out false teachers, you're looked at as being divisive and not being about unity. But these Judaizers needed to be called out. And Paul demonstrates this so well that you can call out false teachers and still call for church unity. And Paul is going to tell us where we are unified. Where does our unity come from? And the implications from this just go so far. They're far-reaching. Look at verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So we're going to get to the maligning of this verse here in a second. I want you, to, want you to see what this verse actually means very clearly. What does it say? Remember that all that have been baptized have put on Christ. We're all on Christ's team together, every single one of us. If you've been baptized in Christ Jesus, then we're all on his team together. He's the captain. He's our Lord. We're moving in his direction. We're on his team. On that team, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. That's the breakdown. You can see that right there. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. All are one in Christ Jesus. All are one in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul is getting at, is that everybody who's in Christ Jesus, it does not matter who you are, a Jew or a Greek, a male or a female, a slave or a free, you are all unified in the fact that you are in Christ Jesus equally. Equally in Christ Jesus. It does not matter who you are or where you came from. It doesn't matter, we could say, young or old. It does not matter the color of your skin. This is a passage that universally applies to anybody and everybody that is a part of mankind. If you are in Christ Jesus, we are all one in Him. We are united in our salvation. We're united in the work of Christ and what He has done, not just for me personally, but for us. That's where we find our unity. Now how it's been maligned and twisted is this. Progressives strip the verse of its glory and say, see, there's no such thing in the body of Christ as male and female. There's no such thing as Jew or Greek. And instead of seeing that we are all unified or one in Christ Jesus, they want to say it doesn't matter if you're male or female. And so you can live, if you're a man, you can live like a female if you want. If you're a female, you can live like a male if you, can wa- if you want. What God says men to do, it doesn't really matter. He's just saying everybody to do that. What says, God says women to do, it doesn't really matter. You can do whatever you want. You see, the progressives haven't thought this out very well. The ones that have not jumped on the 
Uh, I need to be careful just because there's so many kids, the, the, the LGBTQ, all that ban- clown world madness. The ones that have not just jumped onto that yet haven't thought it through very well. Because if that verse means, if that verse means what they say it means, then, it do- then human sexuality doesn't matter at all. The commands that God has given to men and women, the commands that God, God recognizes, and, and it's explicitly talked about Jews and Gentiles, and they're mentioned as Jews and Gentiles who are all one in Christ. The master and the slave, or the slave and the free, are spoken to directly and talked about and given specific commandments. And so there is, for progressive Christianity, who uses that verse to malign it, and that's what the whole council of biblical equality, the council of biblical equality, this is their central and one argument verse. This is what they go to and say, see, there's no such thing as man and woman. And you just simply answer back, well, then why, does, why is homosexuality a sin? Why is the trans agenda and why is all of that wrong at all? Why does God give commandments then to men as men and women as women? Because the whole point of this, and they miss the glory of it, is it doesn't matter who you are or where you came from. We are all equal heirs in Christ Jesus. We're unified in Christ. That's our unity. Do you know Jesus? We're brothers. We're sisters. And it doesn't matter. There's no like, you're, because you're from this, this area, you're, you're a Jew from Jerusalem, so you're more in Christ than the Gentile from Philippi or the Gentile from the Galatian area. No, you are all one in Christ Jesus. And that is glorious news. And in fact, we are offspring of Abraham. Look at verse 29. And if you are Christ, then you are offspring, Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Now notice the singular language again. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Singular. This is the same you know, word that Paul is arguing about earlier. He's making a, a, a big deal, what seems like a big deal about little, but it's a big deal. Offspring. Heirs according to the promise. Now, earlier when he said offspring, there was a direct connection to Jesus. And now he's talking about being baptized in Christ, being unified in Christ, being one in Him. And I want you to see the glory of this verse. If you are in Christ, you are Abraham's offspring. Jesus was called Abraham's offspring. If you're in Christ Jesus, you get what Jesus has earned. You are counted as being in Christ Jesus. You are counted as Abraham's offspring, singular. Now this does not mean that you are Jesus. But it means you're counted in Him. It means that you are heirs according to the promise. That it's not just Jesus who is an heir according to the promise. It's all who are unified in Christ. Jesus, who are heirs according to the promise. Paul's telling them, by missing this, you're missing so much truth. By mixing grace and law, you're missing the beauty of being in Christ Jesus. Of being children of Abraham. Of being the offspring of Abraham. In Christ Jesus, so are you. You are heirs according to the promise. We get what Jesus earned. We have an inheritance that's ours as the offspring of Abraham. Now, I want to point you just to a couple passages. 
couple passages to see the glory of this passage, to see the glory of this verse. Okay, Ephesians chapter 1, we're just a couple pages past where we are. I want you to see inheritance language. Heirs according to the promise. Okay, an heir is an inheritor. An heir is somebody who owns everything, it's just a matter of time. An heir is somebody that's going to be given something by a father that's going to be theirs. It's rightfully theirs. And the offspring of Abraham are heirs of that promise. And Paul has been building this argument up to this point, saying, that's you. You're children of Abraham. You belong to Jesus. Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to look at Ephesians 1, 11 through 14. Then we're going to look at Revelation 22, verse 3, and 2 Timothy. And then we're going to finish talking about Eden being restored. Okay? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance. You are heirs and you have, have, this is past tense, we've already, if you're in Christ Jesus, have obtained an inheritance. Now keep that in mind for three verses later. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, in verse 11, we have obtained an inheritance. In verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Inheritance now, inheritance later. Theologians call this the already, not yet. So as the children of God, you have already received some of your inheritance. It's yours. Your sins are forgiven. There's no condemnation. The Holy Spirit, the promised Holy Spirit is within you, guaranteeing you. It's like this earnest payment. You belong to God. These are promises that we have. We mentioned last week that all of the spiritual blessings in, in the heavenly places have been given to us in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1, verse 3. Part of the inheritance is yours right now. And here's what Paul is, is helping us see. Beyond just the right now. Because what God has done for us in Christ Jesus, we have to see beyond, not just now, what, what's out there for us. What's, what's there for us? Revelation chapter 22, verse 3 says this, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb of God will be on it, and His servants will worship Him. Apart from works of the law, because of God's grace to you in Christ Jesus, this is what we rally around and unify around, your inheritance as an heir, according to the promise, includes one day in the consummation of all things, living eternally in real consciousness with a real body that's made up of matter, that's not just spiritual, Jesus resurrected bodily. You can't move. You, Jesus was spiritually and he had his body resurrected. Thomas was able to Touch the side of his body. Feel the wounds in his body. See the wounds in his hands. 
physical resurrection, and there will be nothing in the physical existence that's accursed, nor will there be anything accursed, nothing cursed. God will have removed everything that was done by the fall, everything that the fall infected and diseased and died out because of the fall, nothing will be accursed any longer. And the heirs, according to the promise, those servants of the Most High God will be the one who ha- ones who have it. The throne of God will be on it, and the Lamb of God will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. And this is the chief and greatest thing about our eternal inheritance, is that we will be around the throne of God, and God's servants will worship the Lamb of God. Forever and ever, we will worship the Lamb of God. We will have God Himself. We will be in His presence, and we will not be crushed. And our Big brother Jesus will be on his throne as the lamb. And we will never forget what he has done for us in his life, death, and resurrection. Those wounds will still be there. We, like Thomas, will be able to put our hands in his side and touch and feel what he has done for us. And we will be around that throne. King Jesus, the one we've been worshiping our whole life. The one who saved us single-handedly, not by works of the law, not through Moses, but by grace. And we will be heirs. We will get to be there and worship Him forever. Not only that, as if that's not enough, there's more. 2 Timothy 2.11-12 says this, If we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. Reign with Him. In Eden, God's, Adam and Eve were commanded to take dominion of this earth. Take dominion of this earth. Like, subdue it. Take care of it. Cultivate it. Make that garden. There, there's entropy there. Not death. But there was work to be done with no weeds. How great is that? How awesome would your garden be, Ryan and Tara, if you got that garden with no weeds? Yes, yeah. Ryan is hoping to convince all his friends to come over and tend that garden over there. (laughs) Garden party, baby, that's right. Eden will be restored better than it was pre-fall, post-Christ. The Lamb of God slain for sinners will be with us forever. And will be the central theme of eternity. And we're going to reign with Him And Eden 2.0 will show up, and we will take dominion of this place, this whole place, and we will reign with him. And by the way, until we get there, we're we're taking dominion right now, right? That's why we're having children, adopting children, raising families, even when everybody's saying, why would you do that? We're saying, because everybody else is going to die out and our family's going to be here. And all the mad people out there aren't having babies, they're going to die, and our babies are going to take their place. And they're going to be raised in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord, and the world and the devil better fear them because they're coming. Yeah, there we go, right? And we're taking dominion until the knowledge of the glory of God covers the seas from sea to shiny sea all over this earth. But then we will have it, and we will reign forever and ever. And I have no idea what that looks like, but friends, that's ours. Nothing accursed. We will again have all dominion 
Our inheritance will be to worship the God of the universe forever and reign with Christ forevermore. And it's you who are in Christ Jesus who are Abraham's seed. And Paul's saying, these false teachers are missing all of this. You guys are missing out. You kidding? We're, we're children of King Jesus. We're, we're sons and daughters of the living God. We're siblings of King Jesus. And what Jesus did is for us. Away with those works of the law. Those can't save. Friends, the glorious good news is that the law, we are no longer held captive by the law. We are heirs of the Most High. Heirs of the promise. Heirs of the promise. We're going to inherit all things. You are Christ Jesus the Lord. There is our unity. It doesn't matter who you are. We're unified in Christ. And now, because we're no longer captives of God's law in that way, God's commandments no longer condemn us. They guide us. They're our delight because they don't crush us. They don't kill us. 1 John 5, 2, By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and obey His commandments, for this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. You see, the Judaizers changed verses like that. They said, this is how you become children of God. You obey His commandments. This is how you become and get God's love. You obey His commandments. And those commandments are tremendously burdensome if that's the message. But when we understand what we heard today, what we learned today, as children of God, sons and daughters of God, all sons and daughters of God through faith, as children of God, we love God and obey His commandments. That's what it means to love Him. And those commandments are not burdensome. It's a great thing to be children of Abraham, to be children of the Most High, children of the Most High God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You.